You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. All right, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. If you're visiting us, we've been going through the Gospel of John through a sermon series we're calling Come and See That You May Believe and Have Life in Jesus. The reason we've called this series Come and See is because the Gospel of John repeatedly invites us to look upon Jesus over and over again to see who he truly is, to know him and who he truly is, who he says to be, not to just guess who he is, but to see it tangibly, to know him and to be enthralled with him, to be in love and amazed at him. Today is no different. John 9 will show us once again as the glorious light of Jesus pierces the darkness of this world, there will be those who hate the light once again, though they can see with physical eyes, they truly are spiritually blind and in in the darkness. And, And then we'll also see the opposite of that. As we've been sort of seeing the last several weeks, we'll see the opposite of that in John 9, that we'll see a man who was physically blind and for the first time in his life will see But not just see physically, he will, the eyes of his heart will be opened to see Jesus and he will, in the end, worship Jesus. John 9 is sort of the culmination, the building of what we've seen in, in John 7 and John 8. It sort of just combines it all and says, okay, let's see all that lived out in John 9. So with that, follow along with me as I read John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, speaking of Jesus, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I 
I do not know. Verse 13, they brought the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? 
Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you, were, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's a lot here. Lord, help us. There is one great thing we are to see here. Open our eyes to see you more clearly. And open our eyes to worship you like this man. Lord, I pray that for those who have had their eyes open to you like this man, that we were once blind, but now we see. Lord, would you stir affection and gratitude in our hearts? And Lord, for those who have not known you, Lord, may they see their need. And like this man, trust and obey. Lord, would you do your work? Would you do your work in us? Be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, Amen. 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 First point, if you're taking notes, Jesus, the one who sees all things rightly. The one who sees all things rightly, verses 1 through 7. Jesus is still in Jerusalem and after having caused quite a stir at the Feast of Booths, if you, if you remember, he declared at the water ceremony of the feast that he himself is the source of living water. And if anyone thirsts, come to him and drink. He also declared while in the midst of the massive torches, you remember the candelabras that were 75 feet high in the temple that would be lit and that, and that were told through history would light up all of Jerusalem as those were lit. And he says in the midst of those that he is the true light of the world who leads his people into life and out of darkness. And at the end of last week's sermon in chapter 8, he declared the most offensive thing to the religious leaders. That before Abraham was, I am, he says. Oh man, he is the great I am, declaring, identifying himself as the God of all creation, the great I am. And now in chapter 9, Jesus, the source of living water, the light of the world, the great I am creator, God is on the move and he is on a mission to show that he truly is who he says he is. He's walking through the city with his disciples and we're told that Jesus' eyes become fixed upon a man that we learn is a blind beggar who has been blind from birth. This man most likely sitting in a place where lots of people pass by so Jesus could have noticed anyone but the great I am who is aware of all creation took notice and set his attention upon this man. John is showing this to us over and over again, saints. When we read our Bibles, I hope you don't grow weary of it. I hope you don't grow tired of it. God has given us this Word, His Word, to know Him, to see Him, to fall in love with Him. And He shows us over and over again, He's the one who goes and sees the outsider. Right? He's the one. The man laying by the pool of Bethesda. No one cares for that guy. 
38 years there. The woman at the well coming in the midday because she's an outcast living a sinful life. And Jesus purposes to meet her there. Oh, saints, don't grow weary of seeing our Savior, our precious Jesus, the great I Am who could be anywhere in the world. And He's going to people like this. Amazing. Amazing. Just as He has done over and over again in the Gospel of John, taking notice, fixing His eyes, setting His affection upon those that the world despises, The king in all his majesty, the God of all creation, looks upon those devastated by the sin brokenness of this world. I love this. I I read this in a devotional commentary that I have, and I think it just so sums up the heart of Jesus and what we see over and over again in the gospel. That's that's why we can... You cannot just approach the Word of God like a textbook. You cannot. Are you with me? Are you you awake? You cannot approach the Word of God like a textbook. It shows us the heart of God so that we will be amazed at God and fall in greater depths of affection and love for God. I love this little statement here. Jesus, this is what I read. Jesus is full of undeserved, unexpected, abounding love. Undeserved, unexpected, abounding love. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Pause for a moment and think back to how and when Jesus found you and rushed upon you in his undeserved, unexpected, abounding love. I was, I was a young, angry kid in an angry home, it was not uncommon to wake up and hear my parents arguing and fighting at you know, 6, 6.30 in the morning before I went to school. I was the same way. I had the same heart. I, at one point, I remember shaking my fist in the air, like punching at the air and telling God, I hate you. And then in my teens running away from God, blind in darkest night. The Lord, in His kindness, I was in El Paso. And on a Saturday evening, I had just started going to a church. I was not a believer. And they went, a few, a group of men went to El Paso. They invited me. I went. I heard them share the gospel Saturday night. I heard the gospel. And in the middle of the night, from Saturday to Sunday, I encountered the undeserved, unexpected, abounding love of Jesus as he found me. Oh, it was the sweetest night of my life. Remember, don't forget, when you read these things, you don't forget how Jesus found you. Don't just rush through these in your daily reading. I am probably the slowest daily Bible reader in the world because I read a verse like this and I can't help but... Sit on it and think about it and ponder it and see it, me in light of it. Don't just rush past these verses as you're reading. Oh my, think upon how he has found you in his undeserved, unexpected, abounding love. Brothers and sisters, we see through 
in this passage, Jesus is going, just like he did for the man at the pool of Bethesda a few chapters ago, he is going to care for this person in their physical brokenness. But it doesn't stop there. It goes way beyond there. It goes way beyond there. We are intended to see how Jesus is ultimately going to open this man's heart to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to become a true worshiper of Jesus. It would be a devastating thing if he healed this man's eyes and the man goes on to use those eyes to live a life opposing Jesus, opposing God, destined for eternal wrath and punishment for his sin, bearing the guilt of his sinful life for eternity. Wouldn't that be a a devastation? But Jesus, so the whole point is, the whole point is we're to see how Jesus, it's all working towards those final verses of this man becoming a worshiper. His, His physical eyes open, yes, but so his, his spiritual eyes would be open to seeing Jesus and worshiping. So we are to see that miracle today. Jesus sees all things rightly. In chapter 8, he told us he is the truth. He is the truth. So he sees everything, all things in light of truth. And all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has also been teaching his disciples to see the world through the lenses of that truth, the truth of God, to see the world the way Jesus sees them. Several times Jesus has told his disciples already, lift up your eyes and see. Look at this. As you follow me, you can't help but look at the world differently. Jesus is teaching his disciples to see rightly. And this moment is, is no different than any another one. Of, it's another one of those moments. No different. Jesus takes notice of this man who was born blind, and so do the disciples. They see this man suffering, and they ask a question. And maybe it's even a question you have asked the Lord when you or someone you know has experienced suffering. Here's their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words... This man's going through all sorts of suffering here. Either him or his parents must have done something against God for God to make this man blind. Notice notice they don't question God's sovereignty in the suffering. But they are questioning God's purposes for the suffering. Their thought is suffering must only be God's punishment. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever felt that way? Have you wrestled with that? You're going through a moment of difficulty or suffering. Things aren't going the way you would hope for them to go. Your health is broken. Things aren't happening as you would have liked. And your thought is, I must be getting punished by God for something I did. Now, there is a reality of consequences for our sinful decisions. There is. There's a reality of consequences for sinful decisions. You steal something. There's a consequence to that. You lie on your time card at work. There's a consequence for that. You live promiscuously. There most likely will be consequences, won't there? So there's consequences to sinful decisions. 
The Bible leaves room for those real consequences. But to assume that all suffering is punishment is not a right belief. It's not a right belief. But how often are we tempted to first go there? I am. I am. Saints, when my health first hit, I was used to being the most loud and bubbly in the room probably. Creative ideas, thoughts always just going through my mind and all of a sudden I don't have energy to even think about anything. It's hard to get up and walk. I'm wobbly. I'm falling all over the place. What is happening to me, God? Why? What have I done? My first impulse, your pastor, that was my first impulse, and it was not a good impulse. To assume that all suffering is the punishment of God is a wrong belief. It is not the right belief. Just as it was in the Old Testament book of Job. Job was a godly. I am so thankful for the book of Job. Oh, aren't you? Oh, I am so thankful for the book of Job. That godly people can suffer. A godly man who was experiencing much suffering and when his friends came to him, with a belief of suffering that all suffering was the punishment of God. And they said to Job, you had to have done something. What have you done, Job? And in the end, what happened? God rebukes Job's friends. Their view of suffering was wrong. So the disciples ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answers them, neither. He has experienced this suffering. And hear these words, precious saints, and let them be a balm to your heart when you suffer. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Why is he experiencing the suffering? Why? That the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is helping them see suffering rightly and helping us see it too. Do you see your moments of difficulty and maybe even suffering as a moment in which the works of God might be displayed through you? As a moment in which the Lord is at work to display His glory through you. It's one thing to praise the Lord when everything is going good. It's easy at that point. I'm feeling chipper. I'm showing up, whistling. It's easy to praise the Lord in those moments. But to praise Him and glorify Him for all the world to see when you are suffering. That is glorious. The Bible speaks of us as these little clay pots that hold a priceless treasure. Well, clay pots are not pretty. They're not appealing in and of themselves. One one commentator says that it's pretty much the equivalent of a cardboard box that holds things in your garage. It's a clay pot meant to hold things. 
clay pots crack and break. And it's as if God is allowing those clay pots to be broken more easily so that the priceless treasure that's within them will spill out for all to see. So it is as we suffer. So what are you currently suffering? What are you experiencing that is difficult? Have you thought, I'm experiencing this at the hands of a God who loves me? That the works of God might be displayed through me. It's not that the Lord delights in suffering. There is a day when there will be no more suffering. And I am so grateful for that day. There's a day coming when He will cease all suffering. He will finish all the sting of sin and death. Every little prick of the sin brokenness of this world will be no more. And I so look forward to that day. A day when Jesus will make all things new again, right? So there's a day when suffering will be no more. But until that day, somehow in His divine sovereignty, there are times when He lovingly chooses to bring about our good and His glory through suffering. Sometimes it's the healing of that suffering. I think this man. Sometimes, many times, it's the enduring of that suffering. It comforts my heart, precious saints, to know that he can thwart the plans of the enemy who does delight in my suffering. There is one who delights in your suffering. That that the Lord can thwart those plans of the one who delights in my suffering and would want nothing more than to crush me in my suffering. And instead, the Lord can bring about his goodness and glory through my suffering. And when, when the Lord, by his grace, begins to help us believe this way, it moves our hearts more quickly from asking, Lord, why? Why would you take me through this? It moves our hearts more quickly to asking, Lord, how? How can I glorify you through this? I think when I first came down with my sickness, with my chronic illness, my, I, I, I grieved a lot. I still grieve. There's moments I still, the other night, Danielle and I are sitting on the couch. We start talking about, you know, going, having my neurologist appointment in a few weeks and just the possibilities. And I was rehearsing that the, the next day will be Thanksgiving. And, and I'm just grateful for that to give thanks after seeing the neurologist. Just grateful for that. And I couldn't help but just start in tears. We grieve suffering. We grieve brokenness. Early on, and when I was I experienced the crushingness of the, just the crushing blows of this, often I was, why, God? I was crushed by my grief. And then there was a point, by God's grace, I began to say, Lord, okay, how can I bring you glory in this? What does it look like to grow in this? What does it look like to love you more in this? So then my prayer began to be, and I ask you often, pray for my joy. Pray that I would endure suffering with joy in my Savior. 
And I think the Lord has answered that prayer. Thank you for praying. My prayer is the same for you. And the Lord grant you joy in your suffering. Lord, how can you use me for your glory in my suffering today? Oh my, I have no idea if we're going to make it through the whole sermon. We may, this may be the first one we have to pause and do part two. <clears throat> I love this quote from Joni, Joni Erickson Tata. She, she was a, a, a young woman paralyzed, completely paralyzed, paraplegic, in a, a diving accident. It's an older woman now who God has used powerfully. She says this. She says, there have been so many things I've been blessed by. By her. God using her. This simple line. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Haven't we seen this all throughout Scripture? Joseph in the Old Testament, thrown into a pit by his brothers, left for dead, intended to die, sold into slavery, lied about, accused, put in jail. Lots of suffering. Also that the end... God could preserve his people through Joseph. Lots of glory through Joseph's suffering. Job, we just rehearsed that. Lots of glory through his suffering. Leading us to Jesus. Saints, our perfect example of God accomplishing his mighty works and glory for our good and joy is most visibly seen in the suffering of our Savior. Isn't it? On his way to the cross, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, torn, ripped apart, bloodied to the point of just almost not even telling who he is, nailed to a cross, nailed to wood, hung up, suffering. Horrifically, that those who look to him may have life in him. That he would take upon himself the punishment of God in suffering. You want to know where the punishment of God for suffering is placed? On Jesus himself on the cross of Christ. That's where the punishment for suffering has gone. The punishment you deserved was put on Jesus as he suffered. So that those who know him, those by faith who look upon him and trust in him and believe in him, that we may enter into suffering and never know the punishment of God in them. Praise God. Oh, praise God. Oh, Jesus goes on in verses four through five, almost with this sense of urgency. I am the light of the world. And as long as I am in the world, that light is shining. So let's get to work fulfilling the purposeful God exalting work of the father. And he then moves towards the blind man. He spits on the ground and made mud with his saliva and put the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus didn't have to put mud on this man's eyes to heal him. There are other places Jesus just simply spoke and people were healed. So there's a purposeful illustration here for us to see 
And I think this is it. Jesus, the great I am, the creator God, who formed man from the dust in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, like a clay potter forming his clay pot. In fact, the word for formed in Genesis 2, 7 is the same verb, the same word used for potters forming their clay. As God formed man and woman. And here is Jesus, the great creator, the great I am, the great pot molder, once again using the dust of the earth to form and make a new creation out of this broken clay pot of a man. Beautiful. Jesus tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came back Seeing, There must be something said here about the simple obedience and trust of this man towards Jesus. This is a man who recognizes his need. This is a man, there's no question about his need, is there? There's no hiding it. It's for all to see. This man is in need. He recognizes it. Jesus comes to him, tells him what to do, where to go. And what does the man do? Simply trust what Jesus says and obeys Jesus' words. We, say, we actually see this progression through this whole story. We see this progression in this man's life. He trusts Jesus. He obeys Jesus. He then will stand on behalf of Jesus, even somewhat defending Jesus. In light of that, he will be rejected for Jesus and ultimately worship Jesus. That's the life of a disciple, isn't it? That's what it looks like. We recognize our need. We trust him simply. What he says, I believe. We obey what he says. We stand with him. He means more to us than being received by the world who will reject us. And so then sometimes we are rejected for following Jesus. And we live a life to worship him. That's it. That's it. Oh, my It wasn't that this mud healed this man. It wasn't that the water healed the man. It was that Jesus healed the man. That's it. Jesus, the God of the universe, who was reforming his precious little clay pot for his glory. A little clay pot that will be a true worshiper of God. The pool of Siloam was was the first stop for pilgrim people who were coming to Jerusalem to worship. God, so here's what's so cool. Even recently, they've uncovered it. They've been wiping off all the dust and all this, uncovering all the steps that go in. And it's a deep, big pool. It was the place where pilgrims coming in to worship. So all those people coming in for the Feast of Booths, even Remember, this was even the place where the water ceremony, they would go and get this water and pour it upon the altar. They would go and wash in this water in order to go to the temple and worship, and worship God. They stopped at the pool, washed, to then worship. Jesus was readying this man to worship. Jesus was readying this man to worship at the true temple. 
when later he would be face to face with Jesus again and he would believe and he would worship. Beautiful. But not everyone is excited about what Jesus has done. Verses 8 through 34 and even 39 through 41, we see the ones who see but are truly blind. You would expect people to celebrate what has happened, but the Gospel of John keeps showing us that though people see with their physical eyes, they are truly spiritually blind to the goodness and glory of God. And so they don't celebrate Jesus and his work. Instead, they interrogate Jesus and his work. We see the man's neighbors, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders who have already done much interrogation of Jesus, and the man's parents. All of them, instead of simply celebrating and being glad in God and giving God glory for the things that only he can do, instead, people are divided over it. Some doubt it. Some are concerned with what people think about them or may do to them. And so out of fear of man, they don't want even anything to do with Jesus. And some angrily question or interrogate everything about it. I think we see the same thing in today's world. We see the exact same thing. Angry interrogation where there should be joyful celebration. I'm going to try to keep moving here. The people that we see here should have worshipped, but they don't. It's the reality we live in. The reality of the blind world we live in. Verses 8 through 12, we see the neighbors who had seen the blind begging man often, probably daily, and they are divided and seem to argue over if this was actually the blind man. Some are saying it is him, while others are saying, no, this is someone else who looks like him. And it says that the healed man kept telling them, I am the man. They asked the man, how were your eyes opened? And he tells them, the man called Jesus came to me, made mud and anointed my eyes with it told me to wash in Siloam. So I went, I washed, and now I see. The, the, this questioning and answering of the man is repeated in each group of people that now encounter the man. It's what you see the following verses. They will ask, how? How will this happen? And the man will respond with talking about Jesus doing it. And here's, here's what I think we're intended to see with all of this back and forth. Because there is a lot of back and forth. But I, I think what we're intended to see is that as the question of how did this happen keeps being asked, and the man keeps talking about Jesus, we see a growing response of hate towards both the man and Jesus. And here's what's, here's what's beautiful too. As the man keeps talking about Jesus we see the progression of his understanding of who Jesus is grow and grow and grow. So as the neighbors are talking to the man in verses 8 through 12, they ask the man, how were your eyes opened? And then he tells them, the man called Jesus came to me, made mud, anointed my eyes with it, told me to wash in Siloam. So I went, I washed, and now I see. And here's the neighbor's ultimate response. They take him to the Pharisees. That's not very kind. 
It's not a very kind thing. We all know what's going to happen when this man's brought before the Pharisees. Not a kind thing, these neighbors. They talk about loving your neighbor. Let's take him to the Pharisees who are going to hate this. So in verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees now ask the man again, verse 15, how he had received his sight. And the man tells them that Jesus put mud on my eyes. I washed and now I see. And in these verses, we're told, we're, we're sort of open to this little nugget that this happened on the Sabbath. Once again, Jesus keeps intentionally doing these things on the Sabbath. You almost want to say, Jesus, don't do it on the Sabbath. It would just be so much better if you didn't do that. But he keeps doing that purposefully. Purposefully. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. True rest is found in Him. True worship is found in Him. Amen. Oh my. So we're, we're, we're found, we find out He has done this on the Sabbath, a day intended for rest from the normal work of the world and to worship God. And if you remember, the Pharisees had made for themselves man-made rules for what was considered to be work that people could not do on the Sabbath day. And in those rules, things like working the ground with your hands or kneading, like making clay or forming things like dough, you could not do those things according to their main, main rules that they lived by. And so here they are, by Jesus simply making mud with His hands, they considered it sin. And just like the neighbors, now the Pharisees are divided over Jesus. You notice this. You see it all through John. Jesus divides. To follow Jesus at some point will lead to some division. Now, we don't go around kicking down the doors of people's lives and hearts and just like, we are division makers. No, you just love Jesus in the work world, you'll be divided. You refuse to give in to gossip, you'll be divided. You choose godliness over worldliness, there will be division. The Pharisees are divided over Jesus. Some say there is no way he can be from God, while others say, how can a sinner do these types of works, these types of signs that he does? And so then they turn and ask the healed man, what do you say Jesus is or who you say Jesus is? And the man now responds, he is a prophet. So, you hear, so he starts off with the man Jesus. Now the prophet sent of God, he must be a sent one from God to do something like this. Verses 18 through 23, the Pharisees don't believe the man's claim of being healed by Jesus. And so they call for the man's parents and interrogate them. The parents do claim him as their son. And they do affirm that he was born blind. But in verse 19, the Pharisees ask them the how question. How then does he now see? And we're told that out of fear of the Jewish religious leaders, because these leaders had already agreed that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Savior, that they would put them out of the synagogue, that they would kick them out. They would be separated out of regular ongoing gatherings of the people of God, considered sinners, considered lost 
people rejected outside of God's family. So they would not be welcomed in any place of worship, kicked out, rejected, completely excommunicated. And so out of fear, these parents refuse to speak, even speak about Jesus who has healed their son. And boy, as a parent, (laughs) I sort of read this and I just, wow. The blindness and fear that was ruling their hearts in this moment. They turn over their son who's been blind from birth, who now sees to speak for himself. Essentially shifting blame. If anyone's going to talk about Jesus, let it be him. It's incredibly sad. But again, the reality, if you're going to confess Jesus as your Savior, it truly does divide. Maybe even families. I have known several people who have come to Christ and in a sense lost their family. Their family rejects them. I've known several. But Jesus is worth it to them. Isn't that sweet? Jesus truly is worth it. I love it. Every single person who is is going to be baptized from from younger to older. I've I've asked this question ultimately as we walk through what is baptism? And and do you know in some places people are killed for being baptized? As soon as they come out of the water, they're imprisoned. It's it's illegal in some places. That's what you see. And even, even here in the United States, we have families who are divided. You follow Jesus now. You become a Christian. You start following Christ. Oh, you are not with us anymore. And I'll ask them, Is Jesus, if that happens to you, is Jesus worth it to you? And I love it because each one of them pondered that question. And yes was their answer. Yes, he is worth it. There will be division to confess Christ, but he is worth every bit of it. Oh, boy. In verses 24 through 34, the Pharisees again call the man to speak for himself. And they essentially demand, they're demanding at this point that he reject Jesus, that he renounce Jesus as simply being a sinner, a sinful man. And the healed man responds with some of the sweetest words, simple and sweet words. He says this, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. I don't know much about him. That's essentially what we say. I don't know much about him. I've been blind beggar my whole life. You're the guys in the temple. You should know something about him. I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know much about him, but here is what I know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. No theological degree. No big fancy words. One thing I know, just the encounter I have had with Jesus rocked my world changed me, grabbed hold of me so that I am not the same. Oh my, that's what he knows. That's all he knows. I love these glimpses of simplicity. The man on the cross, the thief on the cross. No opportunity to live a life going to seminary. Nothing like that. Just simply, simply hanging next to Jesus. 
looking to His side, and even in that we can confess Christ. Oh my. The simplicity of following Jesus. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. Just the reality out of this man's words, all I know is I've encountered Him and I am not the same. The night, the night that I came to saving faith. There were a group of, say, 20, 25 people, and I woke them all up. 2.30 in the morning, I'm just crying to the Lord. I'm just, yeah. All I can say is, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And I turn around, and my friend says, hey, you woke up, everybody. And I turn around, and everybody's looking up, and, and I says, Good morning. And I walk up to them, and one of them, the, the leader, he says, he says, Philip, do you have something to tell us? <laughs> it's 2.30 in the morning. Do you have something to say? What is going on with you? Do you have something to tell us? And I said, all I know is that Jesus saved me. That's all I know. Have I grown in my theological understanding of Jesus? Absolutely. And I've loved every bit of it because it has grown my affections deeper for him. But all I knew in that moment was I was a sinner in need and he was a savior who could save me. And he absolutely rushed upon me. Oh, all I know is that he saved me. The Pharisees accused this man of being a disciple of Jesus. What an accusation. You're a disciple of Jesus. And that was, to, that was a blow. The man, I love it. He basically responds, you must want to be disciples of Jesus. How much you're asking about Jesus. I love just the wisdom all of a sudden coming out of this guy. Amazing. This man responds, verses 32 to 33. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man, speaking of Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing But listen to the blind Pharisees' response. They answered him in verse 34, you were born in utter sin. Who doesn't have a right view, right? They don't have a right theological view, even of suffering. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Blind. In verses 39 through 41, Jesus confronts their blindness. If you skip down to the end of chapter 9, he confronts the blindness of these Pharisees. Jesus has come into the world and he is giving true spiritual sight to those that are blind and recognize, they they recognize they are blind and in need. And they trust him and they obey him, they follow him. And as the light of Jesus shines in doing so, Those who reject him, who think they actually see, these Pharisees think they actually see that they're good, that they are not in need. They are actually truly spiritually blind. And as they remain in that blindness, though they see Jesus with their physical eyes, they will bear upon themselves the guilt of their rejecting the Son of God, their only hope of salvation. They will bear that guilt for eternity. Instead of worshiping the Savior, 
they have made war with the Savior. And here is the honest truth. If there is any one of us in here who is still at war with the Savior, friend, tremble because you will not win. Last, the most beautiful part of this passage is found in verses 35 through 38. When we see the one who was blind, but now truly sees. He could see physically now. Jesus has healed his physical eyes. But now in these verses, there will be no question that he could truly see as the eyes of his heart would be opened to Jesus completely. Verse 32, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Listen to how your Savior takes interest in you, takes interest in us. This blind begging man, and he knows about him. He knows him. He hears of him. Jesus heard that that they had cast him out and having found him. Oh, my goodness. Jesus, the great pursuer of our souls, isn't it? Jesus, the one who pursues, the one who is initiating, he is the pursuer. And it makes total sense then why the very next chapter of your Bibles would be the good shepherd when he talks about how he pursues the sheep. He's living it out here and then he'll explain it there. Beautiful. He is the pursuer. So verse 32, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So do you believe in the one spoken of in the Old Testament, the one who's sent by God, who would rescue God's people and take place as their king over all, the one called Christ, the Savior of God's people? Do you believe in Him? Verse 36, He answered, And who is He, sir, that I may believe in Him? Jesus said to him, You have seen Him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38. And he said, Lord. Hear the difference? Verse 36 to 38. Who is he, sir? And now he says, Lord. Lord. I believe. And he worshiped him. That's the main. That's it. You at the main verse of this passage, verse 38, and he believed and worshiped him. The one who was rejected by the world, cast out by the Pharisees, yet received by Jesus. With his spiritual eyes now open, he worships Jesus. From the moment he washed in the pool of Siloam, Jesus was preparing him for that moment to worship. He would be rejected from worshiping in the synagogue and in the temple. But he would come to the true place of worship that Jesus himself. Oh, I love the word of God. Amazing. Amazing. He has come to the true place of worship. Jesus himself. This man was a new creation in Jesus created to worship in spirit and truth, which Jesus declared in John 4, that worship can happen anywhere. It happens anywhere and everywhere, but the object of our worship is one, Jesus. 
Oh my. That is the only right response. When we have truly encountered Jesus, we live a life worshiping Jesus. That's the only true response. The man, he trusts, he obeys Jesus, he even defends Jesus, he will stand with Jesus before the Pharisees in a sense. He then is rejected for Jesus and he worships Jesus. That is the life all of us are called to. If you have encountered Jesus, that is the life you are called to, to trust him, to obey him, to stand with him. Maybe even then be rejected for him and to live a life worshiping him. Notice John, the writers, we're closing. I promise we are closing, precious saints. Notice John, the writer of the gospel, never gives us the name of this blind man. He never tells us his name. Why? Why? I I think one reason, possibly, why is because we are meant to make the connection between our lives and this man's life. We are to make the connection of the blind man's life to ours. All of us, all of us, born spiritually blind, helpless and hopeless, spiritually devastated by the sin brokenness of this world, needing an absolute miracle to take us out of the pits of spiritual darkness. But in His kindness, in the kindness and mercy and grace of Jesus, He looks upon us. He looks upon us. We are the one laying there helpless. And He looks upon us And he has shown the light of life in us, making us a new creation in him, a little clay pot to hold a priceless treasure in which he is forming and shaping to be a true worshiper. Someone who knows him and loves him and lives for him. John has wrote this as a constant invitation. A constant invitation. Come. Behold Jesus. See what he's done. Don't ever move on from it. Don't ever move on. Don't ever think the saving work of Jesus is is rudimentary, that you move on from it. You come and you look upon it over and over again, and you grow in greater depths of knowing what he's done for you, of loving him and worshiping him. Amen? Amen? Stand and let's pray.